HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Jane Lopes. We'll talk to Jane about wine, Master Psalms, and her new book, Vignette. We'll taste a wine very dear to Jane for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Napa-born Jane Lopes attended the University of Chicago with a degree in Renaissance Lit. Her best laid plans to pursue a master's degree got sidetracked by her love of food, wine, and spirits. She worked her way through Chicago, Nashville, and New York, ultimately landing a psalm job at the, at the legendary 11 Madison Park. If that wasn't enough excitement, Jane packed her bags and moved to Melbourne, Australia to run the beverage program at Attica arguably Australia's best restaurant. Jane Lopes received her Master Sommelier certification in 2018, but with a follow-up story not to be believed, her new book, Vignette, Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles, is now available. Welcome to the Great Nation, Jane. Thank you for having me. Did we cover everything on that intro? I think so. Okay, okay let's go home. <laughs> All right? All right, Jane, I... Um, 
when I first reached out to you, you know, I obviously knew who you were, you know, doing the show in the wine world. Um, I saw you had published a book, and I said it would be great to have Jane on to talk about the book, and not knowing much about the book. But, you know, that it was an interesting sort of, you know, take on what you were doing. Since that book has been released, there's been so much going on. So we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. And we'll cover everything. Um, but before we get into that, um, give my listeners an idea of who you are. Give me your background in life and wine that got you right now to Australia, even though we're sitting in New York City, and to writing the book vignette. Yeah, um, as you said, I, I studied uh, English literature at University of Chicago and was planning to go into academia um, and just needed a job while I was writing my applications and uh, saw a posting for a wine store job and thought that would be fun. I knew very little about wine, but... So any job would have done? This well, happened to have been in a wine... Yeah, uh, yeah, reason. yeah, exactly. Right, so this um, just happened to be a wine store. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had applied to work at the admissions department at at my college and I didn't get the job. So, uh, so yeah, my life would probably be very different if I had gotten that job. Um, and funny enough, they called me up like two months later and offered to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'd already been working at the wine shop and I was like, no, I'm, I'm happy with this. I'm going to stick with this. So wait, stop there for a second. So two months into literally a retail wine job, the dream that you sort of saw yourself in, you know, at great university comes up and in that short period, you're like, no, I'm not doing yeah, it. Yeah, maybe maybe it was four months, Whatever. but it was yeah, it was it was quick. It was um, very shortly. I realized that this was uh, something I really enjoyed, and I think um, you know, wine has so many academic uh, uh, arms to it, um, and is very intellectual, but it's also connected to experiences and um, you know, sensory perception and and being social, which I um, and which you I really were enjoyed. taken by all of that. Yeah, yeah. So you're in the wine store. What happened? So I, I was working there. I, I worked in that wine store for four years. I ended wow. up being manager there, and I was at the same time. I started bartending at the Violet Hour in Chicago. Um, was Violet Hour one of those places that was uh, an early starter in like the cocktail mixology thing? Yes, very much. It was kind of yeah. It was one of the very first sort of um, craft cocktail bars right. in in Chicago. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, I had never bartended before and kind of just uh, showed up there and, and said I, I wanted to bartend with them. And, um, you know, they gave me a chance, and I worked very hard. And it was a very, very hard job, um, but it ended up being one of my most sort of satisfying jobs ever. Um, and just really learned a lot about, of course, cocktails and spirits, but also I feel like I really developed my palate at that, at that job. Um, you know, when you're tasting a wine, it comes to you as a finished product and, and you're analyzing it. But when you're tasting a cocktail, you're always tasting it for, for balance, knowing that you can change that balance. And is the acid too high? Is the sugar too much? Uh, is the alcohol too high or low? Does it need... Um, you know, more bitterness and, and then you get kind of to the stage where you're constructing cocktails and thinking about all those things. So, so um, wine, you don't intervene with much with cocktails. It's like a science project. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Very yeah. cool. So you're there over four years. 
yep. what happens? And then, um, so uh, some of the, the partners in, in the Violet Hour are also partners in a, a Nashville-based cocktail bar. And they were opening a, a restaurant connected with that cocktail bar in Nashville. Um, and they approached me about, uh, you know, interviewing for the position of the beverage director at that restaurant. And, you know, I'd been in Chicago at that point for seven years um, and was, you know, ready for a change and a new opportunity. And so kind of came along at the right time. And Nashville's not the other side of the earth. Exactly, either, so. exactly. So it was, um, yeah, so it was a good fit. And so I went down to Very Nashville. Very interesting place, right? Like a counter tasting bar, was that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Heppard Seat was, you know, the kitchen was in the center of the room. There was about a 20-seat bar around the kitchen, a couple of, you know, um, six tops in the corners and that was it and um you know it was really my first real restaurant job you know i worked at the cocktail bar but i wasn't um, now you're talking wines pairing exactly wines with food, exactly more depth in the wines right? and just you know all the normal things that come with working in a restaurant like hours <laughs> well well yeah and then and you know just things i hadn't really thought of before and i was kind of put in this restaurant and i was the only front of house employee so it was just like all of a sudden i was kind of dealing with seating charts and dietary restrictions and like you so know you were thrown into the fire yeah which was really great but, but I, yeah i mean if you I look back <clears throat> i, I mean, didn't know what i was doing <laughs> you figured it out though. figured it out yeah so you spent did you like nashville I did like Nashville. You know, I think, um, and I write about this a bit in the book, I was I was pretty depressed in Nashville. And so I think I think when when you're depressed, I don't know if you've experienced this, you kind of assign external um, responsibility to your depression. So for me, I was very much like, oh, I'm unhappy and my relationship, this job is so hard, I don't love Nashville, and kind of uh, justifying why I was depressed instead of just kind of recognizing, like, that it was a chemical thing. Um, so I Was that, was Nashville where you kind of defined it or figured it out? I mean, you may have always felt that way at different times, but did it become more clear in Nashville? Um, well, I guess not to go too much into it, it was actually kind of medication that was causing okay. it was medication we're going to talk about yeah, that yeah. i want to get um, through your chronology yeah. first no but i'd say you know the health stuff started in chicago it started in college okay. yeah so it had been already something i've been dealing so with for a while so is what you just described part of why you were ready to pick up and leave absolutely okay so yeah, what absolutely. happens so you know it was part part was certainly kind of this unhappiness and and feeling like i'd be happier somewhere else and then part was also just feeling like okay, if I really want to be serious about this wine thing, I, you know, I can't be the most knowledgeable person about wine in the restaurant I'm working at. I need to be, I need to be, you know, in a community with, uh, with a ton of people I can turn to as mentors. Um, and there were those people in Nashville, but it was... No, Nashville's it was, not it, famous for that. Yeah. It There's was, no osmosis in Nashville. It was definitely less so. I think it's, it's become more and more so now. Um... But, yeah, I, I felt like I need to go work for a restaurant where I can have, you know, mentors. I can have people teaching me about wine. I can be tasting the best wines in the world. Um, I can be doing kind of a lot of really high-level wine service. Um, and so that's where I kind of I felt like I Do you to... quit and go somewhere, or do you look for a job while you're working? I mean, how did the next thing come up? 
Which so, was 11 Madison, right? Not quite the next thing. Go ahead. Um, but New York was the next thing. Okay. So I kind of was looking at L.A. and New York, and a job f- opportunity fell through in L.A., and I had friends in New York, and they were like, let's get you here, um, and kind of situated me with a job kind of at a new sort of bar and restaurant on the Upper West Side when I um, uh, came in. It didn't end up kind of being the right fit. Uh, And so quickly from there, I moved to uh, Mayalino, Danny Meyer Restaurant. When I started at Mayalino, there weren't any sommeliers there. Uh, Yeah, it was just Liz Nicholson, the wine director. Um, So much different now. Yeah, exactly. And What they carry and who brings it to you and everything. Um, And so... You know, I went there and I was bartending um, and kind of, you know, seeing if there might be opportunities in that group, um, but ultimately um, was hired by the Altamaria group um, to, to be a psalm on the opening team at Ristorante Marini on the Upper East Side. Um, so that's what I did in that time. I took my advanced uh, exam. In so Marini was about what year? That was 2013. So 2013, and you start taking, you're starting to go for certifications. How much before that were you? Well, did I took, you have the other certification? Yeah, for, yeah. So, so you had been studying and working and testing absolutely through the years. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I took my intro in 2009 in Chicago. I took the certified in 2012 when I was living in Nashville. I drove up to Cincinnati to take it, um, and then I, when I moved to New York. I wasn't even sure I was going to apply for the advance that year, but um, I just kind of got introduced to the community here and, and really loved it, and um, and it just seemed very natural to kind of to keep studying and, and keep taking this exam. So yeah, I took my advanced and passed it in August of 2013. Were you at Marini or were you at... Um, I was not at Marini yet. Marini opened... October, November. Oh, okay. So it was right before. Yeah. So I, I, but I left my Lino. I kind of took a little time to study. I went and took the exam and then, um, I had like a, a wine trip paid for in Italy. So I kind of just extended that and I traveled around a bit, um, and then came back and started at Marini. Nice. Yeah. So you're at Marini. How long? Oh, about a year. Okay. About a year. Was um, Risto there then? Yeah, so Risto was managing the group. He right. was group-wide. He was the BEV director. Yeah. Right? He's a good guy. Um, he is. He's so great. you leave there, and then what happens? I didn't realize there was so much in between. I know, yeah. Um, then I went to Love Madison Park. Okay. Yeah. And that was what year? So that was 2014. And that was... you spent how much time there? I was. Uh, I ended up being at Love Madison Park about two and a half years. Was that more of what you were looking for, being around people, tasting wines, the level of... I mean, did you feel like yes. I came here to do this? 100%. Okay. I felt like when I got to Love Madison Park, I felt like this is my, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is... It really did feel that my way. My people. Um, and you work with two great guys. You saw Dustin going in and him going out. And then Cedric, who yes. was a sweetheart. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both Dustin and Cedric um, were amazing people to work for, and then, and then just the team, you know, just the Psalm team, um, and really the whole the whole team, the the captains, the servers, the management, um, really, um, really, you know, inspiring people, and it was just 
you know, it was hard. It was really difficult services. But you had been through that for years already. Yeah, it was. Next level hard or different different hard. Yeah, it was different. Um, More demanding. Yeah, yeah. So Uh, after two and a half years, why, you know, it sounds great. Why do you decide to leave? You know, I think, um, I think I just kind of burned out a bit. Uh, From that job or everything up until that point? Well, kind of everything, I guess. You know, uh, 2015, I took the master's exam for the first time. So I kind of had been... And that's ridiculous studying, right? Exactly. So I've been studying the whole time. I was... Really, I started studying right after I passed the advanced. And so I was studying up until, you know, through the time I was working at Marini. And then um, when I started EMP, I really you know, kind of had to focus on making sure I, you know, knew the wine list and knew all the food and, you know, which some of that does help for preparing for the master's, but it did kind of, you know, I was working a lot more hours than I'd been working. I was incredibly exhausted. So, um, it was, it felt a little bit harder to prepare. Um, so, you know, I sat down, I took the theory exam in 2015, um, and I didn't pass and, you know, expected or crushed? Um, I was pretty crushed. You were? Okay. You know, I definitely am. It's like, what the hell? Uh, I'm, you know, I've been a good student my life, my right. entire life. And yeah. I'm used to passing things. Because you put the work in. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I do and I did, but I definitely left that test feeling like, okay, well, my level of knowledge is not where it needs to be. And that's fine. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was very kind of busy at EMP. I was also dealing with quite a bit of health problems. And so I really felt like I, I can't. So good time to. Exactly. I was like, I'm not going to do it again next year. I need to take a year off and kind of regroup. So was it about a year that you took off? No, I ended up taking no from studying or from, Oh, from I thought from when you left 11 mass. No, no, no. So this was after I did take a break from studying. Exactly. Exactly. So I took a break from studying and I just, you know, I just focused on being a sommelier at 11 mass and park, which was wonderful. You sat Um, out the 2016 exam, right? Exactly. Which was you taking off. Yeah. Right. And so then in, and I also in 2017 at 2016 kind of had the, the seeds planted for this book. And so then the, so basically in 2017, kind of feeling a little, uh, just a little exhausted by the prospect of trying to write this book, study for the exam and work at 11 Madison Park. I, I gave my, my notice at 11 Madison Park and really the plan, I'd saved up a bit of money. The plan was to just take some time off and, and, and work and write. And so of all the things that were going on for you to move forward, to do what you wanted, was to put 11 Madison just to concentrate on the things that were important to you at that point. Yeah, and not to say that 11 Madison Park no, wasn't important No, I'm not implying that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's um, a very demanding job. It would be hard for you to do other things, yeah. which meant those things were at that point important, I'm guessing. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that was the plan. <laughs> right. um, plans are often derailed. So that was the plan, and I, I gave my notice and... Um, was chatting with a friend who had moved to Australia, actually a manager I'd previously worked with at 11 Madison Park. And I told him that I had given my notice and I was just planning to take a little time off. And he said, well, I need a wine director, so why don't, um, why don't you come to Australia? 
I mean, we said before, Nashville's not that far from Chicago. Now we're talking other side of the world. Yeah. I mean, you're ready for all of this? Yeah, you know, honestly, I think I think part of the appeal was that it was the other side of the world. I Different think, every day. Yeah, I think if it had just been a, you know, a job in L.A. or San Francisco, I would have been like, well, I'm going to stick to my plan and I'm going to... I'm going to study and I'm going to write, but, you know, this kind of seemed like a once in a lifetime opportunity to, to travel to the other side of the world, really being immersed in a new culture and wine region and, um, obviously a really great restaurant. So I had a few Skype interviews with Ben Shuri, the, the chef and owner and, um, he hired you over Skype. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you went there for the first time. With the job. Exactly. Yeah, I'd never been to Australia before, but... And um, that was... That was... A couple of years ago? Or you, yeah, that was... Well, we kind of had these conversations in November of 2016, and I moved there in February of 2017. When we talk about the book, we'll talk about John, because, you know, that's something you travel with and, you know, kind of yeah. weaves in and out and everything. Um, so you're still there. Yes, still live in Australia. Um, you published the book and all of that. Um, how much different is Australia than uh, the, you're talking about the finest of dining at that yeah, restaurant? Yeah. And certainly, Eleven Madison. Are there a lot of? Are there as many similarities, or are there a lot of differences? Consumer taste. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the big differences in Australia is um, really the kind of. Uh, government-mandated work-life balance. Like, it really is... That you have to have a balance? Well, I mean, I guess your employer can only ask so much of you, is what I'm saying. So there are kind of very strict rules about how much, how many hours in a day a person can work, what kind of the overtime penalties are, penalties for working late at night, penalties for working on weekends, on Sundays, absolutely. So hospitality generally breaks all those rules. Yes. Is is hospitality protected or restaurants kind of sweep that under? Well, you know, there's been a lot of actually recent in the last few years uh, lawsuits in Australia because in the past people just have kind of ignored ignored some of the rules and... um, and so there's been a crackdown on that. And so now more and more you see restaurants saying, okay, well, we, we're going we're gonna to play by the rules and we're going to, you know, it's very difficult because it makes labor incredibly expensive in Australia. Mm. Um, but if you take care of your people, they do a better job. Absolutely. So in the end. Absolutely. You know, Danny Meyer, take yeah, care of your yeah. employee as much yeah. as the uh, customer. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, it was a shift. I also experienced at 11 Madison park where, you know, in the beginning we were working on tips primarily and, you know, the hourly rate is quite low and there's no real vacation pay and, and that was fine. And it kind of, it works. It has its own sort of system, but it definitely is a different sort of mentality than 11 Madison park moved to a non-tipping system. Right. And the idea is that you kind of, you get paid for the hours you work. You work more reasonable hours. You get vacation pay. Um, trying to equalize some salaries with management, which is always uh, mm-hmm. uh, a problematic in, in tipping restaurants in the U.S. And so kind of, you know, you see restaurants in the U.S. moving towards that model. Um, but it's tough. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know how many people know that. Um, 
so the restaurant you're currently in, I think we mentioned it, is Attica, and Ben is the owner chef, and that brings us up to current. Yep. So you're visiting in New York, doing somewhat of a book tour, but you're going to go back next week and hit the floor again. Um, I want to talk to you about a few, I think, important things. You received your Master Sommelier certification, I think it was about a year ago, September. Or, yep, yeah. Um, and this has become a big story, yeah. <laughs> and we'll explain why. Um, you passed, and we didn't get into how many years and that it's in different sections, but you, you, know, you finally passed everything, only to find out about 30 days later... Yeah, it was about five weeks, yeah. Five weeks that you were stripped of passing that exam and the certification. Um, and like I said, it's been a big story. And I think a few weeks ago you came out and what was a good food Australia and really opened up um, for the first time. And that was a year later. Yeah. So I, I want to leave it to you. But, you know, quickly tell me what happened. You know, you took the exam, you passed from that point on. You know, give me an update of, you know, where things are at and, you know, where you're at. I have a bunch of questions. But. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I'm i in a pretty good place with it. I think, you know, it's such, a, I guess, I think everyone's reasons for taking this exam and their motivations that push them to put in the work to pass this exam are very different. Um, and for me, it was, uh, it was a lot about kind of a personal challenge. Um, it was never really about having those initials after my name or calling myself a master sommelier, but it had been about previously about being a part of that community. Um, and, I think the hardest part for me and the saddest part was the response of the community. And I'm talking really specifically about the Master Sommelier community. So you pretty quickly, I mean, you had a lot of real anxiety. anxiety from, you pretty quickly reached out to people you had studied with, mentored UMSs yeah. to like, you know, what the F. Yeah. And very few people even responded. Beyond what you imagined, right? I mean, I, I guess I at least expected, and these are people I have personal relationships with, I guess I at least expected, you know, hey, uh, hey I'm so sorry. About, I'm so sorry to hear this. Like, at I hope you're that. doing all right. Yeah. Not even yeah. a connection. Exactly. A lot of people just didn't even respond. And so... Uh, Is it like the Republicans and Trump? They know he's crazy, but they don't want to say anything. They know that it's bad, but they don't want to like say anything. You know, I I don't know, and I think that's I think there are different different attitudes and different reasons for the silence. But it, to me, it doesn't excuse it, and it doesn't um, it doesn't you know the reason that we all should be doing this is the human element, okay. and if you if you take away that, what are we doing? We're just needlessly memorizing a bunch of facts about wine, you know? So that was pretty quick after. As time has passed by and we're sitting down, you know, about a year later, 
have you seen any of these people or i mean you just get into situations where they're there or whatever i mean yeah. do things temper a little as time goes by with that part of you know the expectation of people maybe responding to you yeah i guess i mean it's being in australia it's not not w- running into people all the time no. and they're not um, calling you so yeah. easily but it's you know it's you definitely have some people who you know, didn't want to lose me from their lives, but just could not engage in this situation for whatever reason. So, you know, people reaching out and congratulating me about the book. A few people reached out when the article came out. and But they I, had sort of a an opening or a segue, which exactly. made it... But that's okay. Yeah. But I, you know, I let them know that their behavior had been hurtful for, towards me. And, um, you they know... apologize? Some, some people. Some people just fall... <laughs> So, you know, just some people can't, could not could not deal with it. You know, I'm curious if it was me or if it was you, and I react differently in different situations. If it was you and you got a call from someone, do you not want to handle it? Do you not know how to handle it? Or you just take the awkward call and say, yeah, I know, I don't know what to... I mean, what would you have done? I mean, that's a good question, and, and I definitely have thought about it a lot. Um, I... 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 I'm really not a person who ignores things. I'm not a confrontational person, but I don't like not having the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Ignoring and exactly. confrontation. I don't like I don't like things going unsaid. I also feel like I am a very um I try to be a pretty empathetic person, sympathetic person, and I feel like I also want to engage in issues that affect my life. And I guess that was surprising how many people who, you know, are fought so hard, worked so hard to be part of this community and then just didn't want to engage with this very important it's not issue. Being a community. Yeah. By them not, you know, being supportive in any way. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I'd like I'd like to think I would have been yeah. um yeah, <laughs> engaged. So in, you were so astounded. You, you reached out to the organization, and you're like, "Wait a second. And as information came out, it was one judge releasing information to supposedly a limited group of people. You know, so why should everyone be penalized? And that was one of the larger MS classes and all of that. Um, you reached out right away, and what happened? I mean, did they want to hear from you? Did, no, it was it was clear that the decision had been made, and that based on. Um, I don't know, Not you much, know. Right? Yeah, I think, um, I think for a lot of us, it's it's very confusing why the course of action that was taken was taken. Um, because if you talk to, and we did, we have. If you talk to universities about how they handle cheating, right? Um, they would never ever you know, void an entire examination's result because of... Do an inquiry first. Exactly. You'd have a... Interview everyone. Yeah, and you would have an external investigation. I mean, were you approached by anyone? No, Like, you know, did you hear from the judge or blah, blah? Mm -hmm. No one asked me a question. that's upsetting, right? That's one of the reasons why it hurts a little more. Yeah. You accept the decision, but in your mind, it wasn't made well, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess I I couldn't I or couldn't you maybe understand. don't accept the decision. That's your yeah. yeah. I, you know, I mean, I I could yeah I couldn't understand why the decision was made. 
Have you heard anything new, any updates? Is it a dead issue in their mind? Is it something you're still pursuing? Um, I wouldn't say it's something I'm actively still pursuing. I do know that there are um, still dissenters in the organization who don't feel like this was the correct course of action, for, you know, certainly for the individuals affected, but also for the organization as a whole. It's not um, a good look for them, right? No, and it really it, it does open them up to lawsuits, and it costs the organization a ton of money to organize these retests. Um, Has anyone sued them? Do we know that? Do you know that? Um, from just from the grapevine. I don't or? think there have been any lawsuits okay. yet. Yes. Yet being a word, maybe. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's slow, but. Sort of fluid. I mean, there's stuff still going on. Yeah, it's right? still definitely it's still definitely a conversation. So I think you may have alluded to this before, but are you going to take your? Are you going to go for the MS again, or? Uh, n no, I don't think so. I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. I think, as I said, I think, you know, being part of the community was always one of my main reasons for being a master sommelier. And you and got that. Um, and you have it. Yeah. Except for the jerks that didn't call you back. <laughs> well, and, you know, I guess the idea of, like, going and teaching an intro exam with all these people right now doesn't really appeal to me. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I, for me, for better or worse, things are very kind of all or nothing. And if I'm not fully committed to this exam... I, I don't think I could you need a I don't think commitment. I could pass it actually. I don't think I could kind of motivate myself to put myself in the mindset to to pass it if so I don't why do it? fully to believe in the reasons I'm doing it exactly. Um, will it have an effect on your career not to have those two letters or I, or beyond that? I don't think it will. I don't either. Um you know, I think who's Let's think of every restaurant group or every great restaurant. Who's going to say, Jane, you didn't get your MS. As a matter of fact, it was taken away from you. We're paying you less. Not going to happen. Yeah, you know, I think there are there's some jobs in our industry that um, people like to hire MSs for, whether it's kind of uh, education director of a, a big right. distribution okay. company or Makes general sense. manager if of a big... Your yeah, constellation exactly. information guy is exactly. an MS. I, I get that. And but I, that's not your aspiration. It's not my aspiration. Yeah. So, so it's fine. I think, I think, I think ultimately I have um, gotten out of this exam what I wanted. I guess my hope, because I do think the community, the organization um, has done a lot of good, can continue to do a lot of good, but I think there needs to be some changes. So that's, I guess, my hope, and maybe I'm involved, maybe I'm not, but it's my hope that there can be some um, substantial changes in the organization that allow it to continue being... Listen, this is just my opinion a year later and sitting with you face to face and everything I've read, it's going pretty slow. So let's hope in time and maybe it's gonna take a little more time yeah. that yeah. it will make the changes for the better. But yeah, there's it, no big shift here. Yeah, absolutely. I think the probably the most interesting thing about the article you mentioned was the response to it. And I had people 
I have dozens no of people reaching out to me through social media, through email, through my website, through LinkedIn, through anything, and just saying that, you know, they had felt, hadn't felt kind of welcomed in the organization, <clears throat> that they mm. hadn't felt transparency in the exams. You open the door a little and people start really yeah. coming through. Yeah, and I think that's, and people felt like they couldn't talk about it before, that they would be kind of ostracized from the community. That's good and bad. It's good that they'll open up and talk to you. It's bad that there's more people <laughs> with those problems Absolutely. than you hoped you know, would be there. Um, all right, so we'll we'll check back with you and you know see where things are at. I think it's such a story now that you know any major shifts you'll probably read about it. You you know any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's I wouldn't call it an industry, but the Psalm world is a big deal to a lot of people, and it's being closely watched. So yeah. something has to happen. Um, I know the MS scandal took a toll on you. I know working. You know, sometimes it's difficult. If you read the book, you're extraordinarily open about fighting physical and mental disorders. And everything we talked about, about your ascent from the wine store to Attica, <laughs> sounds cool and easy. Like, wow, chain really? But, I mean, if you read this book, it's just extraordinarily... I don't know what the word is. It, 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 it's a, it was a very difficult thing for you, and you're very open about you know, issues in your life. So we could probably spend 50 hours on it. But in the context of the book and in your life, you know, tell people you know, the things that you struggled with and how you dealt with it. And you, know, you passed the exam. You're at one of the greatest restaurants in the world. But a tough road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it has been very tough. Um, you know, I, I, I guess part of you, you know, and you can read in the book, but it, you know, essentially, I recommend I, that, I, and yeah. I don't expect you because yeah. the detail in the book is amazing. Yeah. But I have you here. Yeah. No, I guess at the end of the day, I kind of don't know exactly what kind of constellation of 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 health problems I suffer from, but it has been. Um, very difficult over the years. Uh, but let's know. narrow it a little. You're anxious. A lot of anxiety. Yeah. Is um, that a fair general description? Yeah. It I, gets physical? Exactly. I think it's, and it's always been um, kind of very much sort of the physical symptoms of anxiety where, you know, I'm not sleeping a lot. I wake up and kind of the midst of a panic attack and my heart's racing and I'm you know, starving and, and just kind of very hard for me to, um, to focus. And, you know, I feel exhausted, but also very wired and, um, and you've sought medication to help you control, right? And I mean, a lot of times it helps other times you realize it's screwing you up. Exactly. And, um, yeah, I've, I've kind of sought all sorts of different treatments over, over the years. Um, and, you the, know, it's the amazing thing is in the context of what we're talking about, 
you know, read the book, but think about taking your master psalm exam and you have to serve, you know, sort of a jury of your peers with champagne and glasses and all this physical and mental stuff, studying, working the floor of 11 Madison. I mean, all this stuff is playing through you more than most people would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's been... Yeah, it was a very, very difficult road. But I... You know, I didn't want to say I can't do it because of my health problems. Um, you were very descriptive about how you were determined to, you know, fight through it. I mean, yeah. things as literal as when you're doing service for a test, you choke up on the bottle <laughs> so you're yeah. not shaking. I mean, you, everything in your mind you could do to fight. Yeah. You, you didn't give in. No, but in a, in a sense, I feel like that was also sort of the wrong attitude too. Why? Um, Because I think when you kind of view anxiety as something that's the enemy and something you have to fight and something to not give into, it kind of feeds it all the more. And so I think I ultimately kind of... Manage that better? Yeah, exactly. realize it? Yeah, made some strides when I was kind of like, well, you know, so what if they see me shake? So when you look at where you're at now, you know, we're done with the masters for now. Um, You know, you've excelled at work. You're at a great place. If one day you want to come back to the States or whatever, you know, you could pretty much write your ticket, I would guess. Those are all good places. Your social life, which is very much documented through the book, which was not an easy thing to, on top of everything else, yeah. typical guy, you know, you hook up with. Um, <laughs> as if I didn't know that. Um, the fact that all that's kind of okay now, is that any liftoff of you, or it's not? it's easier said than done? You know, it. it's definitely... The fact that I'm not kind of going through the exams anymore is definitely like a a load off, but it also is just, you know, I, I always kind of separated my problems in life into like my health problems. And then like what I kind of would think of as like (laughs) situational problems, um, and I would take all the situational problems in the world to not deal with my health problems. So for me, it's like if I still have like bad days or bad weeks or bad months now, it's still, it doesn't matter, you know, it's, it sucks to say, but it doesn't really matter that everything else is good. Right. I would rather take heartbreak and, you know, failure and, and, you know, all these problems and good health over, you know, everything else is in line, but I can't enjoy it because I just don't feel good. So is that where you're at right now? Is it as much that, or that's a little better too? Um, it's, it's still quite cyclical. It is. Um, yeah. It seems cyclical in the book yeah um where i'll have kind of better patches better weeks better months and then and the patches seem to me like medically you know you'd be prescribed something that would work or mentally you'd have a realization that you were able you know it was a little of everything yeah and sometimes part of the cycle yeah and sometimes the upswings do seem to be 
related to something tangible, whether it's kind of something I'm doing or medication, um, but it could also just be coincidence. Right. And then the downswings seem to be totally random and I can't quite, and you know, I'm always trying to kind of pinpoint, oh, what's going on now? Why am I feeling worse all of a sudden? Is it something that I'm doing? It's something that changed and I, I think ultimately it just is a bit random. Yeah. Well, like I said, we could spend a lot of time on it. I only hope, you know, you're in a good place right now. Um, sitting with you, it feels good, so that's a nice thing. Um, we're talking to Jane Lopes. We're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to get into Jane's new book with her. And, uh, you know, a lot more interesting things, you know, will come out by way of the book. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Jane Lopes. Um, Jane, I want to talk to you about your book. Uh, it was just recently published. Yes. The book is called, in its full title, Vignette, Stories of a Life and Wine in a Hundred Bottles. Um, and I told you this off-air, but, I, you know, I read it cover to cover, and to me it was a very personal, beautiful very revealing, you know, book and informative, you know, which about your life and the wine and all of that. And, and those are just light descriptors. I could have gone a lot deeper. <laughs> I was very moved by the book. And it's, um, the word's not fun because of your life, but it was one of the n better reads I've had in a while. It was just very enjoyable and all of that. Um, so, we tried to get to it before, but the obvious questions were, why did you write this book, and when did you decide? So it was kind of a, a funny a funny little origin story. So I had done, a, um, 2016, I think, I'd done an interview with um, my alumni magazine at University of Chicago, <laughs> and um, there was a literary agent who had also gone to UFC who read it and who reached out to me over Twitter and said, 
you should write a book. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Just made um, that connection with the, the writings at hand there. Yeah. And, and so I said, we got coffee in New York and, and, you know, I think it was kind of his idea that I write like a kitchen confidential style insider's guide to the wine industry, which wasn't really what I was interested in writing, but I, it did kind of like... That's not what was going on with you. Well, yeah, exactly. And I I didn't even feel like I was that privy (laughs) to that information. Yeah. Um, But definitely kind of set set off the spark of like, yeah, maybe I should write a book. Like, you know, I'd studied literature in in college. I did a lot of analytic writing and also a lot of creative writing at at the time. Um, And so... When I thought about what I would want my book to be, you know, I wanted to be able to f- present wine education, but in a pretty, I mean, you said fun. I think fun is f- a good, fine word, um, but in like a, a fun, accessible, but still kind of high level manner. And I think that's right. where it's always the struggle with with wine and wine books is if they're fun, if they're accessible, if they're aimed at the novice, then maybe they're a bit dumbed down. Right. And if they're high level, too inside, then they're they're maybe a bit dry and inaccessible. Right. Yeah. So it was for me kind of every every chapter the the knowledge I presented I wanted to be fun for a wine professional to look at, and maybe they. Maybe it's a new way of thinking about something. Maybe it's just a cool illustration to go with a concept they already know, but something there for them. And then also that it would be an accessible entry point for for a novice. So there's lots of visuals, lots of illustrations. I agree. Charts, graphs, I, right. maps, uh, surveys, games. It's very accessible um, information. You can go to a chapter, you know, you could look up Chardonnay, Cabernet, and there's maps or lists, yeah. recommendations, yeah. you know, so that's a good thing. That, to me, you know, was done well in the easy part. The memoir part is, you know, kind of blew me away. how that? <laughs> when um, did you realize how deep you were going to go? Uh, you know, I even, there's some stuff that I, I held back to. You did? But, well, yeah. You I mean, to, you just have to. You may have to rough you up off the air and <laughs> yeah. get that out of you. Um... You know, I think for me, and I think the education, I didn't see either point ex- part existing without the other. And I actually ran into some... From the beginning? Yes. It's like if I do this, there's yeah. this balance of yeah. these two type of exactly. presentations. Exactly. And it's funny because I actually ran into some resistance with the concept from agents, from publishers, who give me an example? Like that won't work. Yeah, yeah. Why? Oh, the 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 format's a little bit complicated. Uh, you should just do an education book, or you should just do a memoir. Uh, uh, there's too many chapters. You should make it like ten chapters. Pick the ten bottles of wine that are most important to you. But I, you know, I I kind of stuck to my guns, and I was like, that's not the book I want to write. Um, there's no, you know, and it's not like a wild format. It is a little bit unique. Oh, well, listen, my next question is, you know, it's not, 
your typical wine book. No. You know, it's structured in a different way, and I'll set it up. I mean, like I said earlier, it's part memoir and part, you know, wine, wine info and all of that. Describe how the book's structured. You know, yeah. when somebody goes and buys it and opens up, here's... Yeah. We talked a little about it, but walk us through that. Yeah, so um, each chapter is a different style of wine, and it can be... And we're talking how many chapters? I think like 50 or something? Yeah, that's a good question. They're not numbered, but I think it's like... I know one column's 14, so that's 28, I think it's between 50 and 60. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, And each chapter is a style of wine, so it could be something very concrete, like uh, California Cabernet or Barolo. And then there are some ones that are like blind tasting wine or breakfast wine or things that are like, it's a little bit more of an abstract Stuff category. You connect with. Exactly. Like kind of a, a personal yeah. relationship. Women wine, value yeah, wine. Yeah, exactly. Things like that. Exactly. Um, and so then each chapter is kind of a, you know, a vignette, a story of my life in which I kind of had this, personal relationship, emotional relationship to this style of wine. Um, and so it runs roughly uh, linear and you can really kind of read the narrative from cover to cover and sort of, if you want, you can skip over the wine information. You can kind of go straight I think, through. You know, I'm like the eternal, you know, try to cut corner guy. So I'm like, let me pluck some things. And then I realized I'm reading stuff where I, there was a background that set up that chapter. That I, th- I think you should read it, and then it becomes a resource. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because <laughs> you know, I yeah. think the story is very much connected. In there, that yeah, exactly. There are some standalone kind of chapters and essays, yeah. but there are definitely yeah. there's definitely a, a through line. There's definitely a narrative. But like you said, I mean, there's a chapter. Let's say on Chardonnay. If you want to know more about that, the chapter stands alone on the wine part. Um, I was curious when you structured this. Did did the wine influence the memoir or did the memoir influence the wine? So if at some point in your life you're describing the memoir and the wine is so-and-so, was there a connection? What influenced what? Yeah, absolutely. It was mainly the memoir influencing the wine. And, okay. you know, the what was kind of going on in my life at the time and what styles of wine that I was drinking or interacting with. Um, and that kind of really defined the narrative as a whole. There was definitely a point where I was, you know, I wanted to make sure there was a broad variety of styles and kind of, you know, searching my brain to kind of make the, the connections that would allow me to incorporate as many styles of wine as possible. And cause you came from a spirits background. There's a decent yeah. take, a bunch of chapters on, you know, different yeah. spirits. Lots and all of spirits, that, lots of cocktails. Um, which is interesting. So clear something up for me. So are you writing the memoir part and matching the wine to it, or are you doing them both at the same time? Like what 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 was more evolved first? The, the memoir was definitely more evolved first. And then you plugged in or yeah. whatever. You looked for the experience with that wine. Yeah, and you know, it was funny. Well, the memoir influenced the wine. That was my question. Exactly. More than anything. Yeah, and kind of how I, I kind of just wrote, and I kind of wrote my story. I actually wrote sort of the 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 health tract really all together. 
And then I ended up sort of splitting that up into several chapters. I wrote sort of the the John story, my my husband's story, sort of all together, and then split that up into chapters. I wrote the MS story kind of as one story, and I split that up into chapters. And obviously they sort of intertwine. Yes. Um, but that was kind of how I did it. And then I went through and I sort of extracted where where the beverages are, what were we drinking? And sometimes I even went back and added that in where it's like, okay, I wrote this portion of the John story and I kind of left out when I just was going through and kind of writing the story, what we'd, what we drank. And so I went back and I said, okay, we actually, we had Sherry that night and how did I feel about it? And I kind right. of went back through and I infused those elements. Right. In. That's, it's, it's hard to describe it. And the John we're talking about is now Jane's husband, John Ross, who's also in the industry, who is an MS, um, who Jane knew from the business and started going out, but it was an interesting relationship. Yeah, it was. And now easy. they got married, and they're both in Australia. So I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to have you describe that. You have to read the book. Yes. To understand, but to me, good guy, happy ending. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that. With yes. all, you'll, <laughs> people will read all your struggles in between. Um, one thing I noticed in the book was there were a couple of chapters that seemed to be extended. Um, like there was a chapter on a topic and it was three paragraphs and then you talked about the wine. Then I get to two topics. I get to being a woman in wine and I get to natural wines and they're both, both very contentious topics and I think you know you handle them really well. Um, we do a segment on the show, Women in Wine, you know, June, it's just all women wine guests. We try to feature wine not pat ourselves on the back, but just bring the best people, you know, in front of the mic. Um, and when I read the book, your take to me was very interesting. And I want you to open the book up. The bookmark, I think, is 257 or 259. Do me a favor. On page 257, paragraph 2, I always talk to people about... Um, I always talk to people about women and wine and what's it like that and you know how are you treated and all that we all have stories and everything but my takeaway from you was it wasn't about being a woman in wine it was about being a woman and I think you described that in paragraph two is that the right paragraph yeah so um read that for me well the, the chapter starts out I'm often asked what it's like to be a woman in the wine industry I imagine most interviewers are hoping for stories about chefs grabbing my ass and guests refusing to acknowledge my expertise. This has not been my experience. But here's what I do have to say. Being a woman in wine in the wine industry is not the tough part. Simply being a woman is what's tough. That's and why it it my takeaway was a very physical thing, how women are judged and all of that. That was part of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is definitely how women are uh, judged on uh, their appearance so heavily and how that is... This is in the world, not wine. I Absolutely. Mean, right. um, and, I mean, and you just see how, I mean, with all that's going on in the world, how scary it is to be a woman. Um, how, you know, historically men have felt like they could do whatever they want with, um, still goes on that way yeah, in a big chunk of the world. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, there's just so many issues and, um, that really affect women in every industry. I think. Look at page 259, look at paragraph three, take a glance at that. Does that 
Paragraph three, you said? I think it's okay. three, yeah. Um, so as women growing up, we are conditioned to be beautiful, thin, gracious. That's what and to, you were talking about. So yeah. To read, a, read it through. As women growing up, we are conditioned to be beautiful, thin, gracious, and to a certain extent small. Neither our voices nor our bodies should be loud. Due to this pressure, we develop afflictions that are almost exclusively ours, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, malnutrition. And in turn, our bodies suffer and we get digestive syndromes, panic attacks, mood disorders, and menstrual problems. What would our lives and our bodies be like if we didn't suck in our stomach, slouch to be smaller, limit our calories, or overexercise? Now, not everyone has that drastic of a result, but I think a lot of people do. Certainly reading the book. Yeah. I mean, you sucked your stomach in for 20 straight years. Yeah. You know, so you... you I didn't even know I was doing it. Right, which you describe in all of that. And I don't... You know, and I don't want to kind of marginalize that a lot of men do go through these issues as well. Um, but I do think that women women deal with it a bit more on top of all of the kind of women's health issues that are at play in terms of, you know, abortion and health care and uh, maternal leave and all the uh, maternity right. leave and all these sorts of things. Just the expectation is different being a woman. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so I think it's handled very, very well, and you. I think um, you know women and wine is an issue, but I think you know that's the deeper issue. Um, the other topic, and we don't have to get into it as much, but I'm always curious, and I agree with you. You said natural wine has become a contentious topic. It's so divisive, you know, sort of we or them, whatever. Just give me your quick take. Why is it so contentious? And where are we at, you know, in the natural wine movement? Yeah, you know, I actually, I think we're moving into a better place, and I, I'm encouraged than by... Than initially felt? Yeah, okay. well, then, then it has been. Okay. Then it has been. I think, you know, I'm encouraged by, I think, a lot of the leaders in the natural, quote-unquote, natural wine movement. Um, and, you know, prominent figures like Pascaline Lapeltier or... Um, Marissa Ross or Helen Johansson in LA and um, you know I think they're uh, good what's the word representatives faces of the movement yeah spokespeople I think Legit. and I think we you know myself and those three women are pretty much on the same page with this stuff we may have some kind of personal preferences um, when it comes to kind of what we like to drink but they aren't in favor of flawed wine. They aren't in favor of exclusivity. They are about getting more wine to more people and encouraging good winemaking practices, um, which I think is a good thing across the board. And I'd say good winemaking practices and also good viticultural practices. Well, I was just going to say, in all the people I just had, Isabella Geron from Raw Wine on, she's going to be on next week. When you talk about the topic, she gets into like 60, 70% about the farmers and the land yeah. and sustainability, and that's where the problem is and all of that. Yeah. She said, let's get people to do that, and then you know, if people want to intervene, they should just be transparent about it. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. But you also made a point in the book that you know, there's a business here. And if you're running a restaurant and natural wines don't make sense, that's not loyalty to the customer. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, so I think kind of the, the problem points in this conversation are that there have been some winemakers that have jumped on board that have, that don't have good farming practices or, or buy kind of fruit that isn't farmed well. <clears throat> they 
don't, you know, treat, handle the fruit well in, in winemaking and they, and the wine ends up being quite flawed. And this is kind of allowed to masquerade Doesn't as... Doesn't help the movement. Exactly. But that exists in conventional wine, supermarket wine, you know. Well, sure, but I guess I feel like that's a little bit more transparent about what it is, you know? Yeah, yes. Um, Good point. Whereas, you know, I think you have Going flawed wine... Yeah, masquerading as, as right. healthy, natural microbiology alive. alive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and then I also think there's been a lot of sommeliers who have done a disservice to their customers, to their employers, to the movement in general by making it such a, an exclusive thing and making you feel like if you don't like this type of wine, you're wrong. If you don't like this type of wine, you only like industrial wine and that it really um is like a either or like you have to choose that's heavy-handed yeah because there's guys like jorge riera at frenchette that are evangelists and his whole wine list is natural and maybe you walk in and you don't know and there's delicious wines maybe you walk in and know and there's delicious wines but he's not you know, pontificating. It's just what he wants to do. Absolutely. You know, which is fine. That's but great. it is the, the heavy handed guy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, you know, like you said, I think things are going in the right direction. It, it, it feels better. Um, you almost, it almost felt like when you first wrote about it since then, which is not that long ago, things progress in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's the, the, the problem with writing a book is, uh, by the time it's published, you already want yeah. to say new things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it has been a very problematic conversation and movement. Um, and But at the end of the day, the aims of transparency and minimal intervention and sustainable farming are ones I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, right. That's the stuff we hope yeah. gets the traction yeah. and becomes, you know... But I also way. wholeheartedly believe in... in a little bit of sulfur <laughs> going a long way. Well, there's that zero, zero. I mean, that's extreme. We're not talking extreme. Yeah. All right. Um, I want to ask you one more question, then two things are going to happen. I'm going to subject you to our wine list. I ask all our guests the same five questions about their preferences. Okay. Spontaneous answers. And then we do the weekly wine sip where we taste wine. Um, and there's a special wine, which we'll talk about in a minute. But to answer this for me quickly. Did writing the book... By writing it, did it get everything out, you know, your emotion, your anxiety, joy, sorrow, by getting it on paper? And we talked about this off air about how you feel now. Did doing that have any good effect? I mean, I, I mean, I know yeah. it's a completed yeah. work and a goal, but I mean, it, talking about emotionally, and, physically yeah. and mental, did, did it have any, not um, really? I mean, I guess not like concretely in terms of, like, oh, I, um, you know, oh, magically that's a load cured. Off my chat. Yeah. No. But I do think I it's, was hoping maybe. it's been something where, as I said, with kind of the anxiety thing and with mental health issues too, I think there's this idea that you kind of have to hide them and it's not something that's acceptable to be seen as suffering from and that, you know, you can tell your employer that you have. A cold, or that you have a broken leg, or that you, you know, have a, a, a serious disease, but 
telling someone that you suffer from depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or whatever it is, is kind of not acceptable and you're labeled as crazy. Um, and, you know, during a lot of your studying and testing, you had to conceal that. Yeah. You know, just the mood, the sweating, the shakes and all yeah. of that. And I mean, I still think that, you know, when I show up to my job, I take care of business like I'm at work but that was always a priority to you yeah how do I get that done yeah how do I work through my own you exactly know, but I think it's like I think it's like anything else where you know you're going through a divorce or right. your dog just died or whatever and can you can you come to work and be honest about what you're dealing with and still be able to to, to just let it be there and still do your job. Right. Um, and I think that kind of being honest bit is the tough part where people feel like they can't say, well, you know, I am switching over to a new medication and it's, it's been really tough. And to be able to just be honest about that and say, I can still do my job, but right. yeah, I'm dealing with some shit. Right. It is difficult. Um, all right, we're going to move along for a couple of reasons. I want to do these features, and I know I have to get you out of here soon. Um, so we have a thing called the wine list, five questions. First question is, what are you drinking now? Stop peeking at the list. <laughs> um, and that's in the, concept, the context of what are you trying? Is it for the restaurant? Is it something cool you know, that you've been drinking a lot of? What sort of now? Um, what am I drinking now? Um... I'm drinking Australian wine. I mean, okay. we're in Australia. We've both John and I have been really blown away by the quality of wine there. Presents so you're tasting through as much Australian as much it's as a I big can. story now. Yeah, it was a dead story, and now it's a hot story. Yeah. Um, Give me a region or a maker. Yeah, you know, yeah. let's excite um, some of our listeners. I guess Grenache for me is what's okay. is where it's at in Australia. I mean, there's tons of good stuff, but we I think I've been most excited by Grenache. Okay. And um, region maker. Uh, South Australia, um, McLaren, but, McLaren Vale, but really I think Barossa's um, is. So Grenache is from Barossa and the McLaren Vale. Yeah, region. it's you know warmer regions in warmer. in okay. Australia and producer you know. Um, uh, Richard Betts and, and, and Carla, his wife, are right. making um, uh, Grenache and Barossa. Uh, it's Approach to Relaxation is the name of the label. Right. It's called Suzette. Um, it's wonderful. Yalumba, big producer, makes amazing Grenache, everything from their kind of entry level, mm-hmm. um, which is still like 60-plus-year-old vines, all the way up to... Um, they make uh, uh, a Grenache called Tricentenary. It's uh, from vines planted in 1889. Wow. It's an incredible value for what it is, and it's a really, really excellent wine. All right, so Grenache. I tell my listeners we post all our answers. So um, on our Instagram, Facebook site will cool. be all these answers. Um, this is the goofiest question on the list. Favorite wine and food pairing? may not be something you eat every day, every month, every year, but is there something that is just so logically, oh, wow? Or not really. Um, like you and John don't sit there and go, oh, this roast chicken just warrants a... Yeah, yeah, we do. But I guess I've had few... I've had few moments in my life of like really... Where you like, you know, where you're like transcendent that. sort of pairings. Um, you know, we work very hard at the pairings at Attica to make them kind of really fun, excellent. Um, but... 
I guess, you know, you know what the best pairing I've ever had is, and it's not a wine pairing? It was caviar and walnut milk. Jesus, is that a first? Studio, it's a restaurant in Copenhagen, and it was What's the compliment the walnut has to the... It's uh, kind of sweet. Well, it's like a little bit of a sweet walnut milk that you just have this like nuttiness, creaminess, sweetness that's just cutting the caviar. The and it salt was and the little incredible. The saline and fishiness. Yeah. Um, and that was a pairing? They presented that? Well, it was what they did. They kind of served a, a canal of the caviar and then they poured the walnut milk on top. I don't think I'm going to hear that one again. <laughs> All right. Um, you've been around, obviously, the world. Tell me your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. Give me a bunch. You could do Australia. You could do New York, wherever. Um, people that have the selection, the knowledge, fun place to be. Um, anything come to mind? Um, yeah. I think one of my favorites um, in New York was always Charlie Bird. Okay. And a big a big part of that, I mean, they have a great wine list, obviously. Not great huge, food, but well thought fun, of. A fun kind of environment. That's a show favorite. We get that answer. Yeah. But you know what the best thing about, about Charlie Bird is, is that... You can get a bottle by a seven fifty bottle uh, half Halfs. bottle, and I actually took that idea and I'm do that at Attica because I think it's so brilliant, and I think because for me, you know, if John and I go, we sit down glass each. Yeah, exactly. Big glass each, and then we could do two of them, and we could right. try a couple different things. We'll just not get too buzzed and go home and exactly. go about your way. Um, yeah, that that's a good one. Anything else come to mind? Um, I mean, that's a good one for that reason. Yeah, exactly. Um. Oh, let's see. I mean, they're kind of the places that are, are like kind of have historic lists that just they've been stockpiling wine for years, like something like Crabtree Kittle House. Right, in um, Westchester? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where that's always fun to go there and try kind of. That's a, um, that's a good one. I yeah. don't know if anyone. Give me one more. Um, I love oh. Madison Park. Yes. Yes, the depth of the wine, the service, the people. Exactly. You know, that's that's more restaurant than bar, but that's the highest level you can attain. Yeah. That can always make the list. Um, do you have a favorite all-time wine? Now, I'm the most redundant guy you'll ever meet if you listen to this show. When I first asked the question, it, it always fell to the rarest wine or the most expensive wine that people, oh, I had a 61 Petrus. Yeah. It's morphed into the story and the experience connected to it. You know, when John proposed to me, he pulled out a, it wasn't even the best champagne. But what, what's an important wine to you? Um, I mean, there are actually so many, and <laughs> I think that's why, like, that really is what the book is about. So, it's kind of all these wines that have been super, super important well, to me. you know what? In reading the book, I get a sense on some things that there's a little stronger feel than others. They're all meaningful, but so sure. you, if I can distinguish that, you better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think... It could even be a type, you know, or... Yeah. What? I mean, Brollo is kind of the the. See that comes through in the book. That's yeah. an important wine to you. That's the so Barolo of... is a category. Is there a Barolo you ever had that was like, Whoa. well, definitely my best kind of wine tasting experience was when I was working at Ristorante Marini. 
um, Antonio Galloni in Venice did a, a dinner there that was um, uh, a Cordero de Montezamolo dinner. And vintages back to the 1950s. That's special. Um, all just, we double decanted them. And I mean, they were just, you know, even the 50, 60 year old bottles were just perfect, on point, not even a hint of oxidation. I really couldn't quite believe it. And you would, you know, you would get to kind of the 2000 one or the even the 90s one and they just seemed so young right isn't um, that crazy yeah and so that was and that's decent bottle age too well and know. then that kind of became a producer that became important to john and i and we drank those bottles and so um, that there's the, that's exactly that's yeah. how you answer the question all right <laughs> all right last question you should be able to handle this because you've been around wine starting in retail i always ask my guests recommend to me the best wine 15 20 bucks retail Recommend a red, recommend a white. Could be category, like Muscadet has always been a great value in wine. And white may not be your favorite. But give me a red and a white like that. Um, I always say my kids are in their 20s. They can't look like dummies and show up at a party with crappy wine. But they can't drop 40 either. Yeah. So how do you wow somebody at 18, 20 bucks? Um, great question. I think Beaujolais. Okay, creeping up a little, but it definitely. It is creeping up a little, but you can still find sub-20. Right. Um, Great wine. Yeah. For red. Um, Kermit Lynch does like a, you know, like a house bottling, and LaPierre has an inexpensive bottling. Raison uh, Galois or yeah, somebody. Exactly. Is that LaPierre? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely um, in that price range. Yeah, exactly. Um I can't guarantee that it's exactly the price it should it's be. It's okay. In the, We're in the yeah, yeah. lower range. But I would say Australian Grenache too. Like the Yalumba, their entry-level Grenache. So at the very least, let's look for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so maybe it's 22 or whatever. Yeah, you know. yeah. All right, um, so those are two good ones. Um, how about a white? White. Um, I think you can still get good values in... Uh, dry German Riesling that a lot of people are kind of doing a, 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 a cheapy and inexpensive one. By good makers. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and then does I th- that translate to Austria too or it's not as cheap as German? I, to me, I think the, the Germans are a little bit more generous with the residual sugar, which I think can help make an inexpensive bottling um, excel, if that makes sense. I wanted you to di- differentiate, and you did. Yeah. That's why German and, and cheap German. Um, have you ever met a Psalm that didn't like Riesling? No. Right. All right. Any other white? That's fine. But does any? If it doesn't pop in, let's not worry because we got to move. No, it would just be kind of like Riesling things, is but great. It, as far as a category. All right. So, like I said, I'm going to post those because you gave us some good recommendations, some good specifics. Um, we always end the show with a weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. Um, I used to bring wine, and then I realized all you guys have the knowledge and access. <laughs> Nobody's going to kill you if you took a bottle out of. But more importantly. Um, Jane's husband, John Ross, who's a master sommelier and who works in another fine restaurant in Australia, decided to make wine in Australia, and we're drinking his wine, and the wine brand is Micro. Micro Micro Wines, Micro Wines, and he started with a Syrah. 
and now he's got other grapes. So do two things. Just give me a little quick story about micro wines, and then let's talk about what we're drinking. Yeah, so micro wines is um, the micro uh, negotiant project from uh, from my husband John Ross, and so the idea is basically isolating different sites in Australia, negotiant style. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, uh, I've started to say it uh, the way the Australians say it, which is negotiant. negotiant. <laughs> yeah. um, but basically, you know, he's not in a place right now to kind of plant his own vineyard, maybe maybe one day, but but isolating different vineyard sites that are really special in Australia and um, and just making these kind of small batch wines. So you're in Melbourne, right? Yep. So is he staying within his zone around Melbourne or is he traveling the whole country? Um, so his first wine is from Geelong. Okay. Which is about an hour away. Great from- rugby team. <laughs> yeah, and, and and Australian rules football and well, I meant Australian thing. rules yeah, yeah. football. That's what I meant. Um, I didn't. I I'm yeah. Not no, no. I'm glad so. you corrected me. <laughs> um, yeah, about an hour away from from Melbourne, so um, qu- quite close. Um, we've become friends with the winemaker at Bannockburn Vineyard, which is kind of the historic yeah. estate in the region, and so John purchased. Um, you know, about a ton and a half uh, of, of Shiraz from off their estate vineyard. Um, he decided to call it Shiraz instead of Syrah, uh, just to really embrace it. That's um, Australian. Being from Australia. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, he rented a little space in their winery and uh, he was down, you know, he was during harvest and immediately after he was down a few times a week kind of tending to the wines and... So what is it about wine guys and guys that are masters or work the floors that have a compulsion to make a wine? And if you and I sat here, like almost like a game, like you pick a guy that was a psalm that makes wine my turn here, we'd probably go back and forth seven, eight times. <laughs> Why does the, What's John's reason that he wanted to do it? You know, I think John. John's very curious and he likes understanding all aspects of something. So, so being in the process, really, exactly. he just wanted. That's to, a nice thing. He wanted to. He's been working in restaurants for close to twenty years, and he wanted to understand intimately a different side of the industry. That's that's really the best reason. Um, all right, so let's. Uh, Let's let's evaluate it. So we're going to give it a sniff and throw it over the tongue. But first, let's look at the color. You know, typical Shiraz, pretty deep dark, right? Yeah, although I'd say... Not crazy. Exactly. You know, like inky. Exactly. Beautiful, deep red garnet. Yeah. Um, and that... So that, that, that is restrained for some Shirazes. Exactly. Right? I think, you know, when... In the United States, especially when you're kind of blind, you know blind tasting your typical Australian Barossa Valley Shiraz, it's ink black. It's totally right. opaque. You can't see through it. It stains the glass. Right. Um, That's typical of the old line stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about nose? I, I know what I'm smelling. I suck at describing it. You know, at this point, this has become your life. What are we getting on the nose? What are the obvious descriptions? Well, to me, the nose really smells like. Syrah and kind of less like what you think of as Shiraz because the descriptors that are a little vegetal to me in a good way yeah yeah so I think you have that kind of almost like briny quality Mm -hmm. the the green olive Mm -hmm. 
Um, Veggie the olive. Yeah, exactly. Tapenade, you and know, you get savory. Um, yeah, and he's doing some whole bunch with this, so that encourages those savory notes. And but you don't get any. He's not. There's no new oak on this wine. You don't get any no oak, right. um, of that kind of classic Aussie eucalyptus. Those uh, elements are not there. The fruit is pretty restrained. So there's, you know, it's ripe fruit, but it's not um, jammy. It's not mm -mm. dried. It's not liqueured. It's very kind of fresh, vibrant. Well, the next thing's mouthfeel. When you said jammy, jammy wines tend to be, you know, it's it's a pretty full mouthfeel. It's like a medium, medium plus, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not thin, but it's not unctuous or jammy. Yeah. It sits well in the mouth, and it's got a nice finish. Um, do you agree? Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, kind of, you know, Syrah is not usually going to be light body and probably shouldn't be. Right. But it... Um, this is a more restrained... It definitely is. Which is definitely a movement, you know. Yeah. With Napa, Cali Cabs, and even Bordeaux and everything. Well, and I think it's kind of finding finding the right expression. I think kind of having low alcohol for low alcohol's sake is not a good thing. But kind of... Right. You know, just... And I think he was was really open going into it too where he just wanted to express these grapes in a really sort of pure um he, a pure sort of way he accomplished it now when we taste again for the palate does the palate reflect the nose descriptors or what do we pick up on the palate um yeah i mean i think the kind of all the savory characteristics the floral some of that fruit i think is that classic Syrah or is it this wine? I mean, what are the classic Syrah descriptors? Classic Syrah is olives, cured meat, black pepper, um, maybe some floral notes. Fruit is kind of in the the red, blue, purple spectrum. Um, and then, you know, and then there are kind of, to me, that's like a very pure kind of Syrah. And right. I really think what I love about this wine is that it just has kind of the pure Syrah yes. elements. Because I think you can also um, quite often get reduction on Syrah. You can quite often get Britannomyces, especially in, in Rhone Valley Syrah. Um, I agree. Oak is, is often a factor. And really, it's quite stripped down of all those things. Yeah. And just to really... And oak being sometimes the most obvious. Yeah. All right. What, um, what foods would we pair this wine with? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty versatile. I think it definitely can go with something as kind of heavy, as rich as lamb. Um, Gamey. Yeah, but you could also, I mean, I think chicken, pork, it's not a heavy wine, so it really can go well with lighter meats. Um, go well with a burger for me. Very Go very well with a burger, yeah. absolutely. So it's pretty versatile. Yeah. You absolutely. know, that middle, higher end of that type yeah, of food. You yeah. wouldn't eat it with uh, Dover sole. No. You could, but... You could. Um, <laughs> Is he happy the way this wine came out? Is it what he was hoping for? It, it is most of the time. I think with wine, you know, a bottle can change. And if we tasted the same bottle in two hours, it would be different. And I think because it is his wine, wine, he's hypercritical about it. So I think, you know, sometimes he'll taste it and he'll be like, oh, yes, it's exactly where I want it to be. And then sometimes he's like, oh, it's, it's a bit restrained or it's a bit like fruity or whatever it is. And but all wines go through that. Exactly. He's just, you know, he's being picky. He'll, exactly. he'll, he'll soften on that. <laughs> all right, Jane, I don't want to let you go, but we got to wrap this up. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, 
Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, Instagram at SBenRuby, Twitter at BenRuby, and always the hashtag The Grape Nation. The reason I'm telling you those is we're going to post Jane's wine list answers, and I'll give you more information on the weekly wine sip. Um, so you will see everything popping up on our uh, social media sites. Jane, let's talk a little business. The book is available wherever you get books. Yeah, exactly. Um, Amazon, cool bookstores. You even walk into some wine bars and stuff. I'm sure they're carrying it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, it shouldn't be a problem getting it. No. Okay. Um, and if we want to follow you on social media. Yeah, it's... Um, Janie Maxine. Janie Maxine. How come yeah. I know that and you know? I was so J- I always feel the need to justify it. It's like it's a handle J-A-N-E-Y I chose when I was twenty two or something. Maxine. Yeah, exactly. Um, at Janie Maxine. Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, Jane's pretty much on a whirlwind. She's doing a lot of book signings, appearances and all that, and all that's being played through on her social media sites, which is always fun to follow, which is why, you know, I asked you for that. Um, I wanna thank our guest Jane Lopes, um, her new book vignette. I recommend it highly, and I was glad to talk about it. I want to thank our engineer, Jeet, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.